Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and back with me this week is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Great to have you back, Carl. We are recording this on Tuesday morning, September 25th. We tried to record yesterday, and we were mostly successful, except some um, technical screw-ups meant that our recording was not usable. So we're going to, to recap that conversation as much as possible, hopefully make it even better the second time around, and have the benefit of one more day of WTA premier action in Wuhan to draw on for our discussion of the WTA so far. But before we get to that, I think the biggest story in tennis since we last spoke is the Labor Cup, which took place in Chicago this last weekend. Team Europe won again, as predicted, and as they did in in Prague in the first Labor Cup. And Carl, one thing that really stuck out at me again this year is that the the surface seemed to be really fast. I mean, tons of sets went to tie breaks, matches went to the match tie breaks. Um, it seemed to fa- favor Isner and Anderson since, I mean, they'd be the guys you'd figure would benefit from fast surfaces. What do you think? Do you, do you think the surface was that fast? Do you think maybe that's something they're doing uh, by design to even things up a little bit for Team World? It could be. And I, yes, I do think it was fast. It's sometimes tricky just to watch matches and tell, but between the scores and the brevity of rallies, it seemed pretty fast. And it probably also was comfortable for Nick Kyrgios, even though he was dominated in his singles match, he he also benefits from a fast surface and did really well in his doubles match. And if a few points had gone the other way, he would have, for the second straight year, been playing with a chance to put his team in a tie, or in this case, into a win, this year would have been against Djokovic. So it, it turned out to be a pretty close overall event. I think it probably was somewhat for the fans. It, it was entertaining to have such close matches. On the other hand, the rallies being so short, somewhat detracted, I think, from the entertainment value of the match. And particularly in doubles, sometimes on slower surfaces, you get some really entertaining rallies, but it seemed in in these doubles matches, kind of a combination of the inexperience of players and the speed of the surface, there were a lot of bang-bang kind of points. One other possible reason the surface is fast is it probably helps the game of the player who's by far the most responsible for Labor Cup existing and for the organizing, and that's Roger Federer, the guy who beat Nick Kyrgios on a fast surface. Federer lost his two doubles matches, but he won his two singles matches, and he, while he claims he's comfortable on every surface and has done well on every surface in his career, at this stage in his career is particularly dangerous on fast surfaces. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that uh, with, with Federer's preference being involved. And it's an interesting point as well that it it, it maybe works in favor of, of team world, and, and but it doesn't make the doubles more interesting. And that's that's something that, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast and not just on the podcast, that fans tend to love doubles when it's put in front of them. Uh, they don't seek out doubles very much, but... Fans love it when they have the opportunity to see it, but maybe this wasn't the best showcase for it. I mean, 
one kind of weird aspect of the Labor Cup doubles is you have Jack Sock there, who technically was included because of his singles ranking, but at this point isn't a very good singles player, but is very possibly the best doubles player in the world. I just reran my or updated my doubles ELO or DLO ratings, and after winning Wimbledon in the U.S. Open, he's back at number one in the DLO rating. So at least according to the computer, my computer anyway, he's the best doubles player in the world. So Team World has that to draw on. Um, Team Europe doesn't have that. I mean, last year they had Rafael Nadal, who doesn't play a lot of doubles, but is a great doubles player. Uh, Also, according to my computer, uh, top five in the world in doubles. But this year there's no Rafa, and the singles players on Team Europe, even though they're all very good singles players, aren't good doubles players, which meant that the doubles matches had usually one good doubles player, maybe one and a half good doubles players if Isner was out there with him, um, but not so much on both sides of the court. I've suggested in, in a blog post two years running now that Team Europe ought to use one roster spot for a double specialist like Nicolas Mahou or Pierre Herbert. What do you think about that, Carl? I mean, do you think that's a that's a trade-off worth making to have a double specialist on the roster, even if it means having someone who isn't really at the same level competitively playing one singles match on Friday? Yeah, since the singles matches, since all matches on Friday are worth only one point compared to two on Saturday and three on Sunday, it seems worth upping your game for a potential six points in doubles at the cost of slightly or maybe more than slightly lowering your probability of grabbing one point in a singles match on Friday. And Europe is blessed with a few players who would put up a good fight in singles while also being an elite doubles player. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Herbert is the one that that sticks out to me the most right now and not at the same level as Kyle Edmund, who was probably the weakest singles player on Team Europe. But but close enough. And like you say, it's one point. Um, it would be interesting to look at some head-to-head breakdowns and see if there's any individual doubles player who is particularly good against Jack Sock. I've always thought that would that would be a... If you really dug into doubles stats, head-to-heads get kind of complicated because you have team against team head-to-heads, but then you have player against player head-to-heads and a lot of different permutations in there. Uh, so if, if the Europe team wanted to get really strategic about it, they could probably pick one optimal player who is some somehow has the skills to negate the force that is Jack Sock, the doubles player. Do you have a, a read on what it is about Sock that makes him the best doubles player in the world? Well, I, I don't know. I know you've watched more than than I have of him playing doubles, so maybe your answers would be better than mine. What I've what I've read a lot of is is that it's the topspin on his forehand. That basically he, it, it, in specifically his his return from the ad court in being willing to go out, hit the inside out forehand, and just crush it. Like one person commented, I think in an article just this past weekend that that he played doubles like it was singles, um, and I think they were referring to his use of the forehand. And there's a quote that I think we mentioned on the podcast before from one of the Bryans saying that dealing with his his forehand is, is like trying to return an overhead. Uh, and yeah, if he can get that shot in a point, then doubles points tend to be pretty short. Uh, people are, are playing low percentage shots quite a bit. And if, if you can't respond to something like that, then you know, end of story. That's it. I mean, do you think there's more to it than that? 
I think there probably has to be just because him returning makes up a quarter of the points. So I'm wondering if he's really good about how he uses his serve. I mean, I've definitely watched him play doubles, and it, it seems like he has good instincts for when to mix in his kick serve on first serve because he has a really good one. Um, I think he's pretty good at net. I mean, he, he does stay back when he serves and usually when he returns, but when his partner is serving, I think he backs him up pretty well at net. So I think there's probably more to it, but that the thing that really sets him apart is the forehand, as you say. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly the thing that keeps coming up. It is interesting to me hearing the, the tennis world catch up to what my D'Lo ratings were saying two years ago. And I don't, I don't mean that in a braggy way because I didn't, I don't know that I really believed it two years ago when I, when I wrote the, for the first time that Jack Sock was the best doubles player around. But, but now... Jeff, um, you wrote something for 538 you didn't totally believe? It's not that I didn't believe it. It's that they, I mean, the, the article was saying that according to this system, Jack Sock is the best doubles player in the world. And, and I, I, I 100% believe that, that this is what the system says. But I mean, that, that, that's both a pro and a con of, of uh, an algorithm. Is, I mean, the pro is that it's, it's taking into account so much more than at least I as a tennis fan can can understand and 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 create smart takes out of like basically every doubles match ever played the con is that i can't tell you exactly why i mean obviously it's because he wins a lot of matches and wins them against good players but why what were the specific things that makes makes him number one over you know Herbert or the bryans or, or what have you i i couldn't point to match video and say this is what backs up what Hilo is saying, um, but yeah, I mean, he's. he's I, I think since that idea got put in the wind a couple of years ago, and he's backed that up with some great results this year. A, a lot of players, a lot of journalists are warming to that idea. That I mean, obviously, this isn't a fluke anymore. Um, he really could have a once in a generation type of double skills, even if he's not committed to doubles the way that other specialist quality doubles players are. Yeah, I think it's a mode of analysis for a lot of sports of looking at how a team, whether it's a team of two people in tennis or a team of 11 in, in uh, football or soccer or whatever, how it does with or without a player. And Sock has rotated among enough different teams that that's what Elo or Delo is implicitly doing, and it's saying, "Hey, this guy makes a lot of different people have a much better results when they play with him than when they don't." Yeah, that's an interesting point too. Is one one difficulty with any doubles rating system is most players do play with the same partners for reasonably long stretches of time. I mean, certainly, the Bryans are almost always playing with each other. But even players who have cycled through a number of partners, they'll usually stick with a partner for a, f a full season or more if it's successful. So if you have a team like Marak and Pavic, who went on this crazy winning streak at the beginning of 2018, it's, it's tough to, to identify if one of the two players is responsible for it. All you can say is maybe one of these guys was notably better before the streak started, but you don't know if it's because the pairing is good or because Maroc is good or because Pavic is good or what's going on. But 
or with the Bryans or the ultimate example, like we know the Bryans are really, really, really good. But before Bob got injured, we almost never got to see them play with other players. But Jack Sock, on the other hand, from almost the beginning of his his ascendancy to the top of the doubles ranks, he has been swapping out partners constantly. So the fact that he keeps winning, even though he's playing with different people all the time, that's something that not even Mike Bryan can say. I mean, Mike, Mike Bryan has done very well with Bob. He's done very well with Jack Sock. But this summer, he's played with a number of different partners since Bob got injured and hasn't actually been that successful. And that's why he's he's down to number three in my D-low ratings. And Jack Sock is all by himself at the top. So if Jack Sock had wanted to climb to the top of the, the D-low ratings, obviously being being really good is important, but playing with a bunch of different partners is is also a good strategy so that could be sort of a secondary influence on what he's done so far yeah and it's this is a lot on sock and doubles but he several times in big events has won with very little experience with the guy so that was true with mike bryan at wimbledon it was true with pospisil a couple years ago at wimbledon he won mixed doubles at the U.S. Open with Melanie Udan. I think that was the first time they played together. He won mixed doubles gold, I think it was. Was that with... Um, was it Maddox Venus? Sands? Or Maddox Sands? Yeah, I think I'm it was Maddox sure. Sands. And they they also had barely played together. So he's he's switching partners in mixed and, and in men's. And, it, and you know, to, in Labor Cup, to get back to the initial topic, he had to play according to the rules of the event with three different partners in the three different doubles matches and one with each one. And they were playing scratch pairings too, but it was still impressive that he was able to, to lift three different partners to victory. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, Mentioning mixed doubles also makes me think a little bit more about this in this context is I think we, we haven't talked about this on the podcast too much, but we've talked about it a lot in other conversations, I think we'd both love to get into mixed doubles analytics or have a reason for mixed doubles analytics or have more mixed doubles results to analyze or stats to analyze, something. We, we want to do more than mixed doubles because it's fun. And this could be an opportunity is you're talking about Sock playing with new partners all the time. And since there is so little mixed doubles, mixed doubles usually is playing with new partners. Every once in a while, you have a pairing that lasts for a couple of years. Like I think Leander Pays and Martina Hingis played mixed at several slams in a row. And sometimes players do set settle into partnerships for a, a year or two at the slams. But for the most part, it's opportunistic and people are just getting the best partners they can depending on availability and rankings for entry and all these different factors. So it's, it's not random, but you do get a lot of changes from one event to the next. So it, it, maybe we could learn something about players' double skills or some aspect of their, their ability to adapt to different partners just by looking at their mixed doubles results. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's just damn fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that it is. Um, this is not something that was on our, our agenda for talking about Labor Cup, but this it's a, a good time to bring it up. Is Right now, the Labor Cup is all men, and Federer has made some pretty general comments about it, including women at some point down the road. And I think plenty of fans are speculating about what a 
what a similar women's event would look like. Maybe call it the the King Cup for Billie Jean King or the Gibson Cup for Althea Gibson, something like that. Uh, that one might be tilted even more towards Europe over the rest of the world than than the ATP one would be. But what do you think? Uh, I guess there's two separate questions here. What would you rather see? But if if you had the choice between a sort of mixed labor cup with men and women or or a separate women's only King Cup or Gibson Cup in the future? I think if a mixed cup truly mixed the players, then like 50-50, then I would prefer that. In part because if you had a similar format, you would have tighter cutoffs on both the men's and women's side. So you would really have only the top players if you could get them to play, which I'm guessing you could because I'm sure a lot of the women's players have been watching the Labor Cup with some uh, FOMO. So if you could have, you know, Serena Williams, Simona Halep, uh, Angelique Kerber, Sloane Stevens, I'm trying to name a team world for, for every team Europe, you know, that's pretty all-star kind of lineup. By the way, I'm surprised that you think Team World would have uh, stiffer odds, tougher odds to overcome in the, if it were a separate women's event. Maybe that should be a forthcoming tennis abstract blog post because I was thinking just of the American team as being pretty formidable, assuming you could get all the players to to show up. So uh, maybe less talent in South America, but certainly some, some strong players in the U.S., plus Ashley Barty in Australia. And Naomi Osaka. And Japan. I, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's um, that's true. I, I think when I've when I've thought about this uh, before, I just assumed that Serena wouldn't play, which might not be true and isn't really relevant if we're just hypothesizing anyway. But if you take Serena out of the mix, then I think to, the top ten is so tilted towards Europe right now uh, that you. I don't know. It, it, it seems like Europe would have an edge, but maybe it's not as strong as I think. What do you think would be a better event, uh, a combined cup where they, they have to figure out what the name is? Maybe they stick <laughs> with Laver or Alternate or a separate cup? I, I don't know. I, I think both would be interesting. Uh, one thing that struck me thinking about how how much money and how much attention is going to this event that... It seems to, ah, I'm not sure how to put this. Um, I think there's more money in men's tennis than in women's tennis, just as a fact. Like the the the, the slams have equal prize money, but I think there's more money in the the masters events than there is in comparable WTA premieres and um, a few other things like that. And certainly right now, men's tennis has a few players who are who are box office gold to an extent that the WTA can't quite match outside of Serena. Um, and maybe more, maybe Federer is more of a draw than Serena. I'm not sure. But, but it seems like if, if you have the Laver cup and some of the other things that, that the, the ITF and Davis cup are talking about as these star studded events, it, it seems like it could open up that gap quite a bit more, especially if Serena retires. So you end up with a, a, a top five with people like Halep and, and Pliskova who are great and popular, but not at the same sort of transcending the sport level as the the top men are. So 
I think you could take that one of two ways, but in, in terms of favoring a mixed cup or, or a single gender cup, but I think it would be great to have a mixed cup where sort of the, the branding magic of Roger Federer could rub off on, on some of these women and maybe introduce some of the younger women to a, uh, to a wider audience and maybe turn Simona Halep into the global superstar she's meant to be, or doesn't have to be Simona. It should be Simona, but you know, I, I think that's a, that's a real opportunity. And I think that would, that would maybe stop that gap widening between men's tennis, getting all this additional money, getting pumped into it and women's tennis, not having the same thing happen right now. Yeah. I think you're bringing up the money is a really good point. What we're seeing now to some extent with lever cup and all these other cups, including Davis cup, getting an infusion of money from the PK backed group and, that same group talking about other cups like the Majesty Cup is that there isn't enough money in tennis to fend off a hostile takeover. I mean, I don't think that's exactly what's happening here, but I think some rich people in the past who have loved tennis have seen the attraction and potential of of buying a tour event like Larry Ellison and Indian Wells. And we're now seeing what happens when people with a lot of money want to invest in tennis but want their own new separate thing that they have control over and that they don't have to answer to the tours over and they can choose the branding and the the format and and the players even and right now it seems like that money is going into men's tennis and and certainly widening the gap in a way that the structure of the slams and the tours had had kind of prevented yeah, that's a that's a really good point, and I wonder how much of that is something the tours could could avoid or could could do a better job of working with. Because you're right that the, the the tours put a lot of limits on how you get into tennis. Like, I think that the easiest way, and I don't know, I don't know how many zeros are uh, would go into the check you'd have to write to get into tennis this way, but the easiest way to get into top level tennis is probably to buy the rights to an ATP 250 or a WTA international. And we see tournaments come and go like that every year. And Carl, I know you did some reporting on the the New York open that was new in long Island this year. And it was, it it was a nice event and good for New York tennis fans probably, but what did they get one top 10 player at the New York open? Kevin Anderson. Is that right? Yeah, and he was, I think, on the fringes of the top 10 at the time. Okay, and I think with internationals on the WTA side, it's basically the same deal. I think the WTA has a commitment that they'll send one top 10 player to every international, but that means that you get you know, the, the Kuala Lumpur Open with top seed Dominica Sibolkova a couple years ago. So it's... It, you, can't, you can't put something exhibition quality on by just buying in at that level. So what you have to do if you want in the way that PK wants in or Federer and Team 8 want to have a presence, if you want to work with the tours, you have to buy a Masters or Premier event or better yet, go the Ellison route and buy a combined Masters Premier event. And there aren't very many of them. Uh, and most of them aren't for sale. So... Miami's up for grabs and they're always seeming seem to have money problems. But it, besides that, I'm not sure there's any other masters events in play. So it's kind of like if, if you want to get into professional American football, like you got to wait until there's a team for sale. You can't in, in football, you can't just you know create your own 
I don't even know how many teams there are in the NFL, but your own 33rd team or whatever, and send them on an exhibition tour because it'd be boring and stupid. But in tennis, you can do that. And it turns out that that's, that's even better. So do you think, Carl, that there's a way for, for the tours to rethink what it is they're doing to maybe make it more likely that the next $3 billion PK-style investment goes towards their priorities or works with their priorities rather than sort of makes an end run around them? I think it would be tough. You know, one of the things about Sibylkova, Top Seed, Kuala Lumpur is you're only guaranteed one match or part of one match with her. Like, she could get upset fairly or she could show up without much motivation at an international where there's not much at stake. And these formats, one of one of their blessings, one of their virtues is they typically guarantee more matches for top players. You you could the tour could try that and that may be attractive. And I think the ATP is trying that with the the new team cup that is going to I think precede the Australian Open or be roughly that time of, of the year. Yeah, that's the idea. So so maybe that's the the right idea, but there are so many constraints and you know, players are have been good at negotiating for themselves. I, I think there's some desire among players for more power there, like uh, Djokovic called for at the Australian Open this year. But Already, they've gotten the tours to relent quite a bit on, you know, mandatory events and number of events. And those are hard fought gains. And if the tours are going to give more opportunities for outside investors to own events that are guaranteed to have top players, they're going to have to get top players to give back some of the concessions they've won. Yeah, that's that's a good point, is that if if the tours are going to have and have a better product to sell, I mean, are going to be worthy of that kind of in, of investment, then yeah, they need to have the commitment from players. And the only other way to get that kind of commitment from players is just throwing a lot of money around, which is what, what we're seeing happen. And now, the, a lot of this boils down to, 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 like you just said, who has the power. And right now in the men's game, a lot of that power belongs to what are essentially celebrities. I mean, Federer can do whatever he wants. If, if Federer shows up somewhere with a racket, people will go and they'll pay a hundred bucks to see him do it. Um, and the same can be said of Nadal, probably of Djokovic, probably of Andy Murray. But beyond that, the, it, it's a little tougher to see how much celebrity drawing power players have. And like I was saying a few minutes ago, on the women's side, I would think I think Serena has the same drawing power, especially in the U.S., but there aren't very many other women who do, except maybe Naomi Osaka, at least for the time being. So what do you think happens with, with this trend when these players have, have retired? Um, does, does Labor Cup survive as this this huge this huge annual event or i mean can it can it maintain this kind of interest if if the biggest name on team europe is alexander zverev and the biggest name on team world is jack sock i think it's possible i i was thinking when reading about some of these investment sums I was thinking, boy, I hope they've locked them down now for really long-term deals so that if there are some 
some valleys after the peaks of stardom and tennis now that the deals are locked in. There are ways for Federer to continue to kind of add his celebrity to the tournament, including he could take over for Bjorn Borg as Team Europe captain. And I'm also getting maybe some overly optimistic, but getting some signals from people who were at the event that the enthusiasm was just as high for Edmund Sock as it was for Federer Curios, let's say, that somehow just the general association with with the stars and the the team stakes, which the benches at times really embraced and at times just stared at their phones, that that's given the event something beyond just the names of the two players or four players who are out there at the time, which would be, if it's true, would be an incredible success just two years into the event. And I think the organizers have put a lot of thought into how to do it and how to have like a uniform look. And I talked to Jenny Dinger on my other tennis podcast, 30 Love, last night, and she was talking about how great the merchandise was and how quickly it went and how many people around her in Chicago were already vowing to meet up again in Geneva next year. So even though it didn't come down to the last match, in the end looks like not that close of a of an event, and a lot of the matches weren't featuring the biggest names, it it might have some staying power. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Like one thing that fascinates me about the the, the structure of tennis tournaments and the, the just the nature of tennis fandom is if you go to a Grand Slam, like. I think the first thing you notice as a first-time Grand Slam goer is that it is freaking crowded. There are so many people there. And that's true almost any hour of the day, anywhere on the grounds from day one of the main draw. And what that means is if you have Edmund Sock on court 17 or even qualifier versus wild card on court 16, like there are people there. There are people who are into it. Like The level of engagement with tennis even outside of the top players, is astounding. And somehow that just doesn't translate into the same level of engagement for the exact same players if they're playing virtually anywhere else outside of the the slams and a few other tournaments that have have really strong uh, traditions or, or other attractions they're using to get fans in the door. And that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? That if... If the event has a certain cachet, and I mean, there's a lot of ways to get that, but it, it has to happen somehow. If the event has a cachet, people will spend their money, they'll spend their time, they'll show up and they'll be into it. And if the event doesn't have that, like maybe the inaugural New York Open, I don't mean to pick on them, um, but it is a good example. Like It's, it's going to be really tough to generate that. So yeah, you're right, Carl. It's, it's, I'm surprised at how much traction Labor Cup has gotten already and Maybe it just takes a couple of years of Federer investing time and money and marketing, and then you have it for the for at least the next few years. Um, but you I know, think that, one, oh, go ahead. No, no, you, go ahead. Your last episode was all about Davis Cup and somewhat lamenting the loss of the old format. And I think one of the virtues of the old format is there's one court, there's one match at a time very much the opposite of the scenario you were describing at early at a slam when you had matches going on all over the grounds. And whatever that match is, 
is the match that matters for the team competition in that moment. So even if it's not two marquee players, it's it's what everybody watches. It's what they got tickets for. It's it's what they commit to caring about. And that creates tremendous atmospheres. And you don't have the same home atmosphere necessarily with something like Lever Cup, although they try to gin it up with the World Europe concept. And I think it somewhat worked in getting the Chicago crowd behind Team World. But it, it, there is a virtue that we've seen from lots of events in having one court, everyone facing that court, everyone focused on it. This is the only match that matters right now. Yeah, and and that's something that maybe there's room for slams to improve on as well, is like, there's always going to be the, the one main court like Ash at the U.S. Open, but for the first few days of a Grand Slam, the matches on that court can be pretty boring. And uh, you can't really say unwatchable, but... Like not the matches that a lot of people would choose to watch, given a lot of other options. Is in the first round of a slam, you're going to have Serena Williams blowing somebody out, or Rafael Nadal blowing somebody out, um, with some pretty lopsided results, and just not that interesting of tennis. But with an exhibition, you can tweak things so you you are more likely to have interesting matchups. Maybe that brings us back to my first question about the surface speed that. If you have a surface that lends itself to closer matches and tie breaks, then that gives you more excitement. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's an important point. Is is just like, it, it's almost like people who who bet on sports just to give themselves a reason to care. Um, I heard somebody having this conversation at New Haven Qualies this year, of all places, and I think it was a, a married couple who were placing a ten dollar bet on. I think it was a. Monica Puig, Monica Nicolescu qualifying match, and neither of them had ever heard of Nicolescu before, so they were arguing for who got to bet on Puig. But they were they were saying how you know there, there was no way they could pay attention to this or stay interested in this if they didn't have money on the line. But since they did, then <laughs> they were totally into it, and they were you know, trash talking each other a little bit, and and so on. And Jeff, we uh, need more fantasy tennis, clearly. Uh, I'm not sure we do, but. Uh, but fantasy tennis is, is, is it, it is one direction this could go. Um, I, I'm not advocating betting on tennis, especially in the U.S. But but I think to your point, Carl, that with Davis Cup, when you buy a ticket, you buy a ticket to watch whatever's put in front of you, and you invested I don't know fifty dollars or a hundred dollars or whatever it costs for a ticket for for that day's tennis in enjoying what you're watching and. With Labor Cup, I'm guessing the prices were pretty high as well. So people have made an investment of time and money to enjoy it. And even if they don't really care who wins, they're they're going to try to get some enjoyment out of it. And yeah, that's and I'm not even sure what my point is anymore. But I think there's something to be, something to be said for that format. So echoing your point there. Um, and it's 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 funny that as I mentioned earlier, we recorded this yesterday in our first attempt and we also had a 30 or 40 minute conversation of labor cup and i think it's only overlapped about one third of what we talked about yesterday so the the long lost first episode 34 could be of a lot of value to collectors in the future um carl is there anything hey jeff this is how we're going to save the podcasting business (laughs) yeah yeah uh if if 
anyone hasn't read this, the Columbia Journalism Review announced yesterday that the podcasting bubble is over. So this might be our last episode. I'm not sure how this works. If, <laughs> if the bubble bursts and we just can't do it anymore. Um, I think all of our advertisers immediately pulled out. It was, it, it was a horrible day in my inbox getting all the bad news. Um, they were pretty annoyed that we had never run an ad for any of them. That could have been the problem. I think I was supposed to mention them in the podcasts, but yeah. Um, yeah, so if podcasting does survive, it's probably because of the rarity of the, the long lost episode 34 that we recorded yesterday. But I only mention it because, uh, Carl, is there anything else on Labor Cup that we should touch on or that we did talk about yesterday that we should should mention again before we move on? No, I think I think we were okay to move on. Okay, great. Yeah, it's it, it's it, it's almost fascinating to me how fascinating Labor Cup is. Just as a, a, a uh, giving you a perspective on the rest of the tennis tours and just seeing what happens in the, this format, and that's one of the benefits of of having exhibitions in new formats. Like World Team Tennis has given us so much, even when most of us don't have the interest to actually go to world team tennis or give them money, but they have some value as just sort of a foil to the, the rest of the tennis landscape. But, yeah. You know, I was thinking that you said earlier that the one opportunity is to buy a master's or a premier event or a combined event. If you can, if, if you do want to invest in tennis. And I was thinking just how much more buzz I feel like labor cup in each of its editions has generated than the average masters or premier event. It's a very imperfect measure I know, but there's something about it being completely different as a format and happening once a year and having a very different kind of trophy at, at stake that, I, I don't know, just seems like a pretty good proof of concept for maybe it's not helping that all the masters are just like each other. Yeah, that's true. And, and I don't know, one thing that came to mind when you were talking about the, 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 the risk that you have a star player who only plays one match and is gone, like the ATP has has tested round robins on tour. I think it was 2008 or something like that, that they were, were doing that in, I think it was for a month or two, February and March, they were doing that at two fifties and it didn't work. Part of the reason was some complicated tie break scenarios was if somebody retired, it really screwed up the, the three person round robin. But, um, but the, the attitude has always been that if we're going to introduce something new, it's going to be for the whole tour, whether it's you know, no let, which they tested at the challenger level or the round robins I just mentioned, or um, some of the, like the serve clock is, it, it's, it's not permanent yet, but it's, it's sort of a, a, a binary. Is it part of tour level tennis or is it not? But yeah, it could be that some of these things are, are very good ideas in moderation and that probably isn't true of no let that's a bad example but maybe it would be good if if one or two masters events or some 250s switched to a round robin format and you got to see everybody play at least twice um or who knows what some of the innovations that are being used at the the next gen finals so playing fast four or something like i'm not a huge fan of fast four but maybe that would be a way to spice things up for for a tournament that's trying to get some traction within the 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 structure of the tour but doesn't really know how to do it and can't get Roger Federer to come up, come, come show up and promote it. So yeah, there's lots of potential there. Um, 
So now that we've said we have nothing else to talk about and we should move on five minutes ago, let's spend some time talking WTA. Um, the WTA season doesn't last as long as the, the men's season, so we're already in the home stretch. There were three tournaments last week. We're two days into Wuhan. I think Simona Halep is on court right now, and in, in my effort not to make a lot of noise clicking, I don't even know what the score is. So let's talk about last week's results. In, in Guangzhou, Kang Wang um, won her second title of the year over Yulia Potintseva. In Seoul, Kiki Bertens won a title over Ayla Tomljanovic. And in Tokyo, the premier event last week, Karolina Pliskova won in the final over Naomi Osaka. So, Carl, let's just, just start from there. What jumps out at you from, from these results last week? Well, first of all, even though she lost in the final, Osaka backing up her U.S. Open result in the first three matches she played. And doing it emphatically. I Even since yesterday when I mentioned it, I haven't looked up the exact stats, but I think in her first three matches, she hit about 25 aces without hitting a double fault. She faced only a few break points, was broken once, and pretty much dominated three really good players. Then she was dominated herself by a great player in the final, but it was still considering what must have been quite a whirlwind after winning the U.S. Open, a really good showing in her first tournament back in her home home tournament. Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised by that as well. Um, and the natural comparison to make there is with Sloane Stephens, who won her first Grand Slam at the U.S. Open last year and then didn't win anything in Asia. And she's continued to be, Sloane Stephens has continued to be uh, pretty ineffective in Asia. She lost first round to Donna Vekic. Um, she lost her first match in Wuhan yesterday, I think. So she's having a hard time in in Asia. Do you have any idea, Carl, why that is? Why it is that, that Sloane Stevens is unable to win a match after the U.S. Open? It's bizarre. It's not like it's a big surface change. There are some players who do much better in their own country than outside of it. John Isner is one. But Sloan has had good results outside the U.S. She made the French Open final. So I don't I don't get it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I do think there's, for women who aren't going to make Singapore, there's kind of a, there, there could be a loss of motivation. There, there isn't a big event left for them in the year. But Sloan is in pretty good position, so, um, or at least if she won some matches, she would make it into Singapore most likely. So yeah. she certainly should have the motivation to to play well these next few weeks. Yeah, and you're right; it's not a big surface difference. It, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fact that she can't find an Applebee's. I don't know what the deal is. Um, but she's not the only. The only woman who's had a hard time switching over to Asia, Caroline Wozniacki, lost her first match in Tokyo. That was to Camilla Georgie, which is not an easy first assignment, but still a match she should have won. And Wozniacki's season this year has been pretty shocking. I mean, she she surprised us in the first place by being so strong early in the year, winning the Australian Open, finally getting that Grand Slam, uh, missing Grand Slam off her back. Uh, and she looked like she could be the best player on tour for the first few months and 
has done almost nothing in the second half of the season. She's down to fifth in the race, and there's not a whole lot of space between fifth and eighth or ninth. So, I mean, she's she's probably going to be there in Singapore, but it would help if she won a couple matches. She did win her first round match, or I guess it's her second round match in Wuhan over Rebecca Pedersen um, of Sweden, but not a strong result for her either. I mean, do you have any idea, Carl, what's... For, for someone who you'd think, given her game style, she should be pretty consistent. Um, the sort of player who wins a couple matches every tournament, even if she's not always making really deep runs. Any idea what's holding back Caroline Wozniacki? No, not really. I mean, she she did have in the spring on clay and, and also at Indian Wells, she, she did what we've talked about before on the show, which is consistently win a couple of matches and then lose so she wasn't racking up points for singapore but she wasn't flaming out early um so maybe there she was a bit unlucky not to get more points not by not spreading out her wins differently and and winning some tournaments while losing in the first round of others and some of those losses pretty understandable tough players i mean she lost a, a tight one to Kiki Burton's in, or sorry, <laughs> she got blown out by Kiki Burton's in Madrid. But Kiki Burton's on clay is tough. So, so for a while maybe it was bad luck, but lately, I mean, she really used to do well in the on the U.S. on the North American hard courts, and she won one match between Montreal, Cincinnati, and the U.S. Open. So, uh, just not not anywhere near her Australian Open form. It is something of a pattern on the WTA that a player who is red hot for a month or, f- or three will often then flame out for quite a while after that. And maybe that's just the nature of the randomness of sporting results combined with the parity at the top of the WTA. But Waz is far from the first player in the last few years to look formidable all of a sudden and then all of a sudden afterwards look pretty ordinary. Yeah, and... It- we we've had a couple other results happen or similar stories happening right now. One of them is Bertens, who, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, she won in Seoul. It didn't look great in Seoul, but did come through and beat Tomljanovic in the final. But she lost uh, today in Wuhan, and I think it was a pretty pretty routine match. Uh, and another example is Caroline Garcia, who I think Carl, you you've been a, a pretty big Garcia fan in the past and looking for big things from her. And this time last year was a really big breakthrough for Caroline Garcia. She won Wuhan and Beijing back to back decent showing in, in Singapore. I think she made the semifinals there. So she looked like she was suddenly a legit top five player. And just thanks to those results and, and getting to an occasional quarterfinal this year, she is number four right now, but She's going to have to defend Wuhan and Beijing to stay there, which is a pretty big ask. And as we record this, um, she has just... Ah, she split sets with Siniakova. She's up a break in the third against Siniakova. So maybe she'll get through that. But it, it's certainly iffy whether she's going to be able to defend all those points. Um so the big question that maybe we've talked about this before on the podcast, I know a lot of people have, have made a lot of effort to answer this in, in various columns, is we do have this seemingly unprecedented parity in the WTA. And you can read that one of two ways. One way is to think 
but with Serena gone, there's no great players. It's just kind of a mess of good but not great contenders at the top. The other way to read it is to say that you know when things start flattening out like that, it, it, it there's a theory that that means that the, the level of competitive, competitiveness is higher. Um, I mean, there's not there's not room for anyone to differentiate themselves that much because the level of competition is so high. Um, do you have an idea about that, Carl? Do you think we're seeing sort of generalized mediocrity or or a new level coming from a lot of different players? Yeah, I think this is one of the great conundrums that people haven't really figured out how to solve analytically. Like, you could say, okay, the top five isn't so strong because they keep getting reeled in by number six through ten. And then you could say, well, but that's because six through ten are so strong. Yeah, but they keep losing to 11 through 15. Well, that's because there's just strength all the way down to 15. Yeah, but but they keep losing. You know, like, it, it, it's not clear how to define greatness in that way. You, you could look over time at who is, who is dropping out of the field and who is being added to the field. And I think that's one way to look at it. But players themselves are also always getting better. That's that's what they say anyway, and it, it makes sense to me that if a player is competitive over a decade or more, they've probably had to raise their game to to match the overall level rising. I mean, I, I do think that we might superficially look back at this period and say, yeah, but there, there weren't any all-time greats because there wasn't anyone who really pulled away and won seven slam titles. And I guess there still could be, but it's been such a long period that we've had different players all the time lifting the trophies. So that argues more for we just don't have the strength at the top. We don't have the all-time greats at the top. But, yeah, maybe maybe we just have a whole lot of all-time greats at the same time taking trophies from each other. Yeah, it is it is tricky, and it's I think it's also tough to uh, tough to make those judgments given. Uh, given how non-linear it is at the top. I mean, it, 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 when we talk about all-time greats right now, we're pretty much just talking about Serena. And if you look at the the open era, Serena is, I mean, it, I don't want to get into the argument of whether she is actually the greatest, but if we talk about contenders for being called the greatest, it's a really short list. I mean, it's basically Serena, Steffi Graf, Monica Seles, Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova. I mean, that's... There are a lot of really, really good players who aren't on that list, but those are your contenders for all for, for these transcendent players who who make you think, well, this is not a weak era because we have Monica Sellis right now or something like that. But if you're only going to have five over a period of fifty years now, then you can't really you can't say we should have one at any given time. And if if what we're seeing right now is is Serena kind of phasing into retirement. So let's just say no judgments involved that, that we don't have Serena right now, then it's not really the, it's not the fault of the field right now that there isn't an all time great present. Um, And I think that's, that isn't what people acknowledge that they're talking about. But I think when people complain about parody and the weakness of the field, that's kind of what they are talking about. We don't have someone dominating Um, to which my answer is, well, that, 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 that's not their fault. You can still have a really, really good field minus that top player. And I don't, I don't know if that would stand up analytically or even 
like you point out, Carl, there's a lot of problems with even trying to accomplish that. Jeff, what do you think is the probability that, again, barring Serena Williams and her sister Venus, and let's bar Maria Sharapova too, who hasn't really been a threat at Slam since she's come back from her drug suspension, what do you think is the probability that one of the women who's already won a major title and is active finishes with seven or more? Do you know offhand how many women have won seven or more? It's not that many. Yeah, it's not. Um, I can check while you think about it. But yeah, it's, it's it's a good question, and and I wish you hadn't started by saying by limiting it to the women who have won one already, because I I'm kind of ready to pencil Arena Sabalenka in for seven slams. Um, yeah, I mean, but, partly I was doing that because we have so many young women who are already showing promise. That, but it's also so hard to project a player that young. But not hard for you. You've 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 got her. At, okay, Sabalenka. <laughs> we'll count it. Well, no, I'm I. I, I I am partly joking. I mean, I, I'd like to see a little more from Sabalenka before I start predicting she's going to win seven slams. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know, gut feeling 20, 25%. And a, a good chunk of that is for Halep because she could win a bunch of French Opens and because I love her. And another chunk of that 25% is for Osaka because she does look so so great so early and she she has a skill set that i think could could turn her into a dominant player um but yeah we're we are talking about pretty small probabilities and seven slams does feel like a pretty substantial step down from the top five greats of all time that i'm talking about but but it's still uh, it's it's still a lot yeah the answer is there have been 10 in the open era and two of them are William sisters yeah, uh, and I think the most recent, yeah, the most really the only one who's particularly recent who did it is Justine Hennen. Right. Yeah, I, I knew she was in there. So yeah, that, that that's an interesting question. And I mean, what would you think is if you were to take the same pool of of players? I'll I'll turn a similar question back at you, Carl. What do you think is the peak number of slams we're going to see from the the best of these? Of the ones who've already won a slam title? Yeah, and Sabalenka, if you want. And Sabalenka, okay. Uh, yeah, I think five feels reasonable. That's where Sharapova is and seems likely to end, and that's that's where Hingis retired at. Yeah, that I would have said four, but yeah, we're in, we're in the same range. Um, yeah, it, w- it will be interesting to see. And a, and a big question is, it, it's the same thing with, with the men's game to some extent, that if we are seeing a bit of a weak era, then then maybe the generation coming up of maybe you'd count Osaka and Sabalenka, but also Anastasia Potapova and um, I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of a lot of prospects with a lot of big potential coming up in their in their teens on the women's side right now. Maybe that's always the case, but it, it, maybe I'm just paying more attention right now than usual. But it could be that that generation just sweeps away the Halops and the Pliskovas and Kvitovas and the, the women who do have an outside shot at getting to five or seven slams. And maybe in a couple of years, they'll be the ones on the outside of the top 10 looking in. I wouldn't bet on that either, but, but it is one possibility and not just on the women's side. We could see that with the men as well. Jeff, I have a Caroline Garcia stat to throw at you. Yeah. So 
I think she's her ranking is due for a correction. Five of her last 11 wins, she's lost a higher percentage of... She's won a lower percentage of return points than her opponent has. Wow. Now, that, that's a stat that you and I look at sometimes and that people can look up on tennisabstract.com. It's called DR. It's the ratio of your percentage of return points won to your opponents. And she's got a below one DR for five of her last 11 wins. And in fact, for eight of her wins over the last 52 weeks, including some pretty big ones. So, and, and she has a winning record when she, a, a way better than, than 500 record when she has a DR between 0.92 and 0.99, including that win over Halep at in the Beijing final last year. So, that's clutch. That means you're saving a lot of break points. You're you're winning a lot of break points. You're you're winning close sets, or you're you're winning two close sets and losing a not close set, which has happened, including at the U.S. Open this year against Monica Puig. But it's not typically sustainable. So doesn't look doesn't look great for for her to be able to match her results, which means she could settle in at number 20 or number 15, but I don't think number four is, is a reflection of her true level now. Yeah, and as, as you're saying that, Siniakova got the break back in the third set, so uh, she could lose all those Wuhan points by the time you're listening to this podcast. Um, yeah, that's and I, I'm not sure we look at those stats enough. I mean, most tennis fans probably don't look at it at all, but, but just the idea that that the overall percentage of points won or return points won or, or any any peripheral stat like that, like, you've got to just be winning a lot of points. I mean, if you're lucking into to match wins, um, even if it's not as many as Garcia has, then yeah, like you say, Carl, it's difficult to sustain that. And that's one of the few indicators we have with the stats we have. Uh, we can look at it and say that a player is due for a correction. So it seems seems pretty comprehensive that the signs are pointing in a negative direction for Garcia. Um, that's a good note to end on, I think, since we're reaching the, the one-hour mark. Uh, Carl, thank you for joining me, and also thank you for being willing to do episode 34 two times. <laughs> well, as you noted, it's, it's a 34A. It's a whole new episode. Yeah, a whole, a whole, a whole new episode, and, and our episode count will forever have this asterisk. I think it's actually the second time we've had to redo an episode, so maybe that's two asterisks. I'm not sure how that works, or one more detailed asterisk. But anyway, thanks everyone for listening. Um, you only have to hear it once, unlike us, you had to hear it twice. Uh, lots of new content at tennisabstract.com for you to check out. Um, as Carl mentioned, he has a new 30 Love episode coming down the pike about Labor Cup, so be sure to listen in and, and check for that as well. And otherwise, technical issues um, notwithstanding, we hope to have another episode for you next week. See you then. <laughs>